Hi, good morning. How's everyone doing? Doing well. Praise God. So good to see you guys uh, this morning. Welcome to everybody uh, joining online. Uh, I want to congratulate you because uh, you made it to week 12, uh, our final week of our uh, summer sermon series through the book of James. Now, uh, if everybody can name all 12 sort of sermons that we went through, you will receive a 1,000, I'm just kidding, uh, because somebody in here probably can, and I will not commit to that. Uh, yes, we've been making this awesome summer-long journey through this book of James, really dissecting the subject of faith, and specifically faith at work uh, in our lives. Uh, we know that faith isn't just mental assent or this mental activity of believing. Rather, faith moves us to action. And the world that James lives in looks a lot like the world that we live in, a world that's marked by all sorts of brokenness, economic disparities, all sorts of injustices. And James has a lot to say about how faith intersects uh, in every area of our life and how faith in Jesus moves us uh, to be obedient to living out the word, not just living these isolated lives that where faith is just practiced in church or in small groups. And so uh, this morning we have made our way to this final section in the book of James, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 18 as we close out this series. So I want to invite you to stand with me uh, to honor the reading of God's word. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. It says this, uh, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as we pray. Lord, we come in Jesus' name. We ask that you would meet us this morning. Wherever we're coming from, whatever this week has brought, uh, whether good or bad, uh, Lord, I I pray that this moment would be a moment where we can set our eyes off of uh, the momentary afflictions and the momentary distractions and see you. Holy Spirit, would you help us see the Lord? And as we look into this word, Lord, I pray that we would be transformed, that we would be a people that is moved to seek you and commune with you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, on Friday, my son turned one, which was uh, incredible, I know. Uh, one year older, and, uh, and, and something was uh, unlocked in him. Uh, it was his first time uh, intentionally having sugar. Uh, I'm sure he's had sugar before, you know, snuck in through, you know, the food processes. Uh, but, but he had, he, we put a cake before him and, and he ate it 
and uh, he went crazy. It was like he, he became a whole new person. All of a sudden, like his range of motion for like extending for food was uh, increased. If you put food in his hand, he would uh, instantly eat it, and it seemed like something uh, uh, was unlocked in him. And, and, and I share that story because everything leading up to that moment, we, we went to visit my family in Red Oak to, to celebrate his birthday south of Dallas. And, and right before we left, we were kind of, uh, I don't know if you do this, but, but we try to like leave the house as clean as possible so when we return, it's less overwhelming. And as I'm locking the door, I remember, oh man, I forgot to take out the trash. And so I make my way to the kitchen, no biggie, take out the trash. And then I remember there's one more receptacle of garbage that's in the nursery and it's this, it's this diaper bin that is designed to retain and keep out all the odor. And uh, this diaper bin collects diapers uh, over the course of a week. So if you can imagine a diaper bin that has just been collecting uh, dirty, poopy diapers and sitting there for weeks, when you open that thing up, it is a, an experience. And, and mind you, I have the worst gag reflex ever. Uh, smells and all that move me to just kind of want to vomit. When I go to the dentist, their note says, uh, gag king. Uh, that's how bad it is. And so as soon as I opened up this trash can, I had the, the worst smell of poopy diapers that I was moved to just one. I just started going crazy, gag, and I couldn't breathe. And so I started holding my breath to try to take it out. But this thing is so jam-packed with diapers that you can't even lift the bag out because it's lifting up the trash can. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And so this experience that should have taken me less than one minute ended up taking me at least four or five because I had to keep going back and forth to hold my breath and cover my face with shirt. I come back to the car. Morgan sees me. My eyes are red, bright red, watering. I have just had the worst experience of my life trying to take out this bag of poopy diapers. The reason why I share that is because in that moment, it was a very uh, uh, difficult experience to breathe. Uh, there was a, a circumstance that, that would move me uh, to discomfort and to pain that caused me to hold my breath. And in my attempt to hold my breath and, 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 and refrain from breathing, it actually made the task more difficult. Uh, and I'm reminded about something that I, that I read in, in a book this week on prayer, where author John Onwucheka says that, that prayer is like breathing. And that our prayers are oxygen to our spiritual lives. And, and more often than not, sometimes we find ourselves in this place where we're experiencing the life in this world, we're experiencing all sorts of brokenness and moments that are suffocating, and it seems like we can't breathe. And instead of taking in oxygen and nourishment from the Lord, it seems like we run to anything or anyone else. And I, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life, I can feel very spiritually suffocated. Uh, I, I can feel very fatigued spiritually. And I notice this correlation uh, that, that when the quality of my prayer life goes down, it seems like the quality of my relationship goes down. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the less we read, the harder it is to, to get stuff done. I mean, imagine trying to work out and not read. Be a very difficult experience. Now, imagine trying to follow Jesus without breathing, without praying, 
without practicing a life of prayer. And so James has uh, quite a few things to say about prayer, and that's what we're going to do for the next remaining moments. We're going to make our way through this last section of James, and it's going to feel like we're covering really random topics, uh, but I want you to stay with me because we're going to tie it all together as we answer this question. What does this portion of Scripture have to do with our everyday lives? Why does this subject of prayer matter? So let's start with verse 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Uh, some commentators have pointed out that, that the more accurate reading is, uh, is anyone suffering? You must pray. Uh, is anyone cheerful? You must sing praise. Uh, that, that, that there's no other option except to seek the Lord in prayer and to seek the Lord in praise. So let's answer this question. What, what is prayer? Well, uh, the Greek words here means speaking to God, communication with God. Uh, I love one um, definition, turning our hearts to God. Um, so when we commune with God, we're, we're simply talking to God. We're, we're speaking to him. We're turning our hearts towards him, and, and, and we're expressing this vital component of relationship, and that is communication. Uh, and every single relationship, whether um, married or non-married, friendships you're trying to build, all require a level of communication if you want to build any sort of uh, intimacy and depth. And the same thing is to be said about our relationship with God, is that when we're in relationship with God, he invites us to commune with him, to to speak to him, to turn our hearts to him in prayer. And so the question is, why do we respond to suffering with prayer? Why is James encouraging his people who we know are afflicted? We've said this every week. This is a a first century church right uh, on the heels of the resurrection of Jesus that is starting a movement of following Jesus in one of the most chaotic cities or hostile cities to the faith, that is Jerusalem. And so you have people who are opposing the way of Jesus violently. We have a community of Christians who are rising up in this city and they're experiencing all sorts of suffering. And James' encouragement to them is, hey, if you're suffering, pray. And, and, and what I love about this is that when we respond to suffering, afflictions, our hard moments in life, when we respond to God in prayer, we are not running away. It's not sort of this passive resignation where we say, oh, there's nothing else that I can do, although that is true. And we're turning to God uh, as, as we are running away from our problems or uh, passively um, Uh, sort of submitting ourselves, saying there's nothing else to be done. Rather, what we are doing, as one author says, is we're enlisting the aid and ear of the Lord of hosts. That, That when we turn to God in prayer, in our afflictions and in our suffering, what we're doing is we're enlisting, calling upon the Lord to help us. And who is the Lord? He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth, who spoke everything into existence through the words coming from his mouth, who, who, who tells the seas to be still, who orders creation in such a way that when he speaks to creation, it responds to him, who can cast out demons and raise the dead. So when we commune with God, when we're speaking to God, we're not talking to this uh, fairy agent that's in the sky that maybe will respond to us if we're on good terms. Rather, we're speaking to the creator of every single fiber in the universe. And we enlist his aid. We ask for his help. And in the kingdom of God, when we are a follower of Jesus and we live as citizens in his kingdom, what's so amazing about the kingdom of God 
is that when we experience miseries, when we experience afflictions, hard times, relational breakdowns, problems in our marriage, uh, the sting of parenting kids that won't listen to us, when we experience all sorts of pain, it's not the vehicle that drives you away from God. Rather, it's the vehicle that drives you into closer intimacy with God. This is what's so amazing about the kingdom of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that the worst moments in your life will not be the moments that take you out and separate you from the Lord. Rather, they can be used as the vehicle that drives you into closer intimacy with Jesus. And so uh, one way that, that we can think about this is that when it feels like life has its very stormy waters and your boat is sinking, prayer is the act of removing your eyes from the situation, from, from trying to do all that is in your strength to take the, the water out of the boat or, or sail yourself to safety. Prayer is the act of removing your eyes from your situation and calling upon the Lord. Calling upon the Lord who is faithful to meet you where you are and, and, and bring about your safety. Maybe it's not the immediate deliverance, but he will bring about his perfect will in your life in a way that results um, in your maximum goodness and his maximum glory. When we pray, we are communing with a God who is so familiar with our human experience. Uh, we're communing with a God uh, who, who when Jesus walked in this world, his world didn't look too much different from the world that we live in. Uh, his world was filled with all sorts of uncertainty, economic uncertainty, political uncertainty. There was unrest. There was division. There were many things that could move the people of God to prayer. And, and when we pray, we are uh, communing with a God who is so familiar with the effects that sin has on us and so familiar with our suffering, uh, he is so aware and so connected to our human experience that when we turn to him, he not only receives us, but he can care for us in such a unique, personal way because he knows what you're experiencing. He knows what you're going through. He is this good physician, this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace that when we turn our hearts to him, when we commune with him, he's a good friend. He's a good father. He receives us well. And so one point that I really want to drive home here is that when we turn to God uh, in our suffering, uh, there's, there's two things that happen. One, it's this act of putting our salvation in God's hand. Because what do we do when we're suffering? What do we do when we're afflicted? What do you do when uh, you feel like there's no way out? You're in a cave and you're disoriented and you're looking for the light. You're trying to do everything in your power to just to get out, to get your head above water, to breathe. When we pray, what we're saying is, God, my life is in your hand, and I trust you for my rescue. I trust you for my salvation. I trust that your plan is far better than my plan. And so, in essence, what's happening, uh, as Grant Osborne says, we renew our submission to the Lord. When we turn to God in prayer, when we're afflicted, we are renewing our submission to the Lord. We're saying all over again, Lord, you are in control of my life. Lord, uh, you are in control of every single detail, of every single area. And so I want to submit to your will, to your good plan, and I want to let you take control over my life. I want you to drive the vehicle of my life. I want you to bring me to safety and deliver me 
as you see fit. James says, are you joyful? Are you happy? Well, let's sing praise, he says. You must sing praise. And so what does this mean? Uh, In James' early first century context, he wasn't talking about Hillsong, Young and Free, or whatever Christian radio station comes on. He wasn't inviting them to to just play whatever random worship songs that, 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 that were of that day and age. Rather, he's referring to the Psalms. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when James calls upon his people to sing praises, he's, he's referring to the word of God. He's referring to the book of Psalms. And Psalms is a Hebrew word that means songs. So there's a book of songs that is filled with all sorts of songs that are written by the psalmist that move our hearts to worship and praise. And so he says, sing songs of praise. And, and and you can just go through the book of Psalms, flip through it, put your finger on one of them, and chances are there's a song of praise. There's a verse that, that celebrates the goodness and the awesomeness of God. Psalm 145.19. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Psalm 27.4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Are you cheerful? Are you happy? James exhorts us to approach the Lord with songs of praise. Why? Because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And when we approach God with songs of praise, what we're doing is saying, Lord, uh, these wonderful good moments that you've blessed me with, these sacred moments of joy and happiness uh, are a gift from you. So I praise you. I thank you for it. And what that does is it helps sort of reorient our hearts uh, on, on the Lord. So that when we are experiencing wonderful moments in life, we remind ourselves that they're a good gift from God. And that he's a good father who delights in bestowing these moments of joy in our life. But let's be honest, not all moments are happy moments. Not all moments are joyful moments. A lot of us in this room are grieving. A lot of us in this room are hurting. We're annoyed. We're frustrated. We're feeling death in our life. So what do we do then? I have good news for you. Um, not all of the psalms are happy psalms, but they're songs of lament. In fact, this category of lament represents the largest portion of psalms, of songs, in the book of psalms. And so what is lament? Lament uh, means to express to God your unhappy emotions, uh, your feelings of sadness and disappointment, your feelings of anger and worry. And what lament does is it leads us to call on God to rescue us from our pain. Lord, deliver me from this feeling of injustice. Lord, deliver me from this feeling of anger and worry and disappointment. Lord, help me with these frustrations and these parts of my heart that are so moved by agony. Lament leads us to petition God for forgiveness. And the reason why lamenting is such a powerful tool is because it allows us to pour out our hearts to God. And get this, remember that there is a God who enjoys shouldering our burdens and receiving us in our agony. 
That's really good news, church, is that if you feel extremely disappointed, if you feel bitter and angry and lost and disoriented, that there's actually a way for you to approach God and God will receive you right where you are and he'll help shoulder your burden. He'll meet you where you are. He'll bring about your healing and restoration and deliverance, maybe immediately, maybe not immediately, but you get God when you turn to him. That you can lament and God receives you right where you are. And this is the largest category of Psalms in the book of Psalms. I believe because it's one of the most familiar human experiences that we all go through. We see examples of lament in Psalm 131. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Have you ever felt that? Lord, I'm, I'm crying to you. Do you hear me? We have the psalmist going through an experience just like this. And it reminds our hearts that, hey, there, there's this place in our spiritual lives where we can uh, faithfully complain to the Lord and he will receive us and not disown us. That there's a way to approach the throne of grace and say, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm bitter, and God is, is not shying away from that. Rather, he enters into that mess with you and says, you are those things and I am here with you. Psalm 6.3, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 10.1, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Perfectly normal experience to feel this way. And it doesn't make you any less of a Christian. Rather, it reveals the depths of humanity that we all experience in this sinful world. And what's so amazing about the laments is that they usually end by praising God as the psalmist remembers how good God truly is and how faithful he has been. And I believe is that sometimes we really need to empty ourselves of how we're really feeling and what we're really thinking and believing so that we can see clearly and remember who God is and what he's done. Uh, that in lamenting, we need to pour out our hearts and say, Lord, I'm frustrated. Lord, I'm tired. Lord, I'm angry. Lord, I'm disappointed. And as we get that out, and it doesn't take up any more real estate in our hearts, in our minds, then we can see clearly, God, you've been good. You've been faithful. You've been with me. Um, and you're still worthy of my trust and worthy of my praise. Um, it's what some psychologists uh, call this, this, uh, how they lean on this practice of, of confession. Because one of the most dangerous things that we can do when we're in a funk is ruminate in our own thoughts. Is just kind of sit there in our thoughts, replaying situations and scenarios and, 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 and having fantasies about anger or sadness or worst case scenarios. And it just begins to form this funk in our lives. Kind of like my son's diaper disposal. Where after a while, it's just a mess. And it seems like this is really difficult to pull out. But in our lamenting, in our ability to confess, Lord, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm feeling. What happens is a supernatural transaction where it, it, it releases real estate in our hearts and our minds. And it's transferred over to a God who cares about you. And now you're free to see who God is and what he's done. Though it may not free you from the agony and the torture, you will see that there is a God who is there with you. Excited to receive you and help shoulder this 
burden. That's why we see Psalm 10.1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? And the psalmist just goes off railing against the Lord. And then this is where he arrives in Psalm 10.17. You, Lord... Hear the desires of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Are you hurting? Are you broken? The Lord invites you to confess your pain to him. And he will receive you and and renew you in such a way that you will see that he truly is good in God. James continues, verse 14 through 15, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him... Pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So uh, there's a lot happening here, but uh, really uh, a good takeaway here is that uh, suffering is not an isolated event. Rather, it's a communal affair. Uh, that, That when one of us mourn and struggle, we all mourn and struggle. And so what James is reminding this community of people is, is that don't struggle and suffer alone. Rather, if you're sick and, and, the, and, and the context here would have been if you're bedridden, if you're, if you're beyond help and praying for yourself, call upon the leaders of the church. Bring them into your situation and have them pray over you, anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. And so there's a, a few uh, understandings of, of what oil could be here. It could be symbolic. It could be ceremonial. Um, essentially, it represents God's presence and power. Uh, as we see the oil, the anointing of oil in the Old Testament, where God would pour out the oil on a, a king, and it would represent God's presence and power over that person. And we can understand it to be it's God's presence and power at work through our prayers, and sometimes we Seeing it, seeing it work symbolically helps reassure our hearts that God is working and that God is here. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so what, what this means is not necessarily that if you have this prayer of faith, this person will be saved. Rather, this word saved uh, talks about being made whole. Uh, from uh, being broken and bound up in sickness and ailment to being made whole and restored. And James says that the prayer of faith has this ability to to, to make people whole, uh, to see people who are sick and afflicted receive healing. Now, what I want to point out about this prayer of faith is that it doesn't necessarily mean that every time you pray, somebody will be healed. Uh, Rather, uh, the prayer of faith means to wholeheartedly trust God's character, his word, and his right to supersede our desires. Uh, That the prayer of faith means that you wholeheartedly trust God's character, who he is and, and, and what he's capable of doing. You trust his word and you trust his ability uh, to supersede our own desires and will. And, and this brings a lot of peace because it answers the question, what if you pray for somebody and they don't get healed? Well, the prayer of faith leaves room for God's will to overturn ours. Because maybe God wills that that this person would be healed and restored, and maybe as God sees fit, uh, this healing for this other person will come at a later time or in a different scenario, maybe on this side of eternity or in heaven when we're fully restored. But God knows uh, what is best for his people. The prayer of faith means that that we wholeheartedly, with all of our heart, trust God's character. 
His goodness, His faithfulness, His word as it speaks to every situation of our lives, and His right to do as He wants and as He sees fit, as He fulfills His will in our life. James goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so we start off this section with, uh, there's a call to approach God with prayer if you're suffering. If you're feeling joyful, there's this call to express praise to the Lord. And then we, we have this, um, this section about confessing our sins to one another that could seem kind of out of place. But I want to remind you that sin isn't just the bad stuff we do. Sin is a worship disorder. And, and this is sort of the, 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 definition, the definition of sin, the story of sin uh, that we see in the scriptures, specifically in the Old Testament, is that we would have a people of God uh, that God would set apart to worship him and praise him and live for him as Lord. And then there would be a generation of people that would completely abandon the Lord and would worship anything and everyone else except God. Like that rock, that rock seems great. Let's worship you. This leaf, ah, why not? We're going to worship a leaf today. A golden calf makes sense. And so we would see a people of God worshiping, praising everything, anyone except God. And so what we see happening here is that the people of God would worship things that they believe would build them up, free them, or make their life better. And so when we think about sin in this way, that sin isn't just these isolated events when we do wrong, rather sin is this worship disorder. It is this propensity to want to praise a different God or to live for a career, to live for a relationship, to center our lives on anything or anyone but God. We see that this lifestyle comes with consequences. And that throughout the whole story of Scripture, we never see the people of God get better when they live for themselves. Uh, We never see nations restored and the home life, uh, uh, quality of life increase when when the people of God would worship or live for other gods. And, And that living for themselves or living for anything or anyone else would come with consequences. Now, I'm not saying... That sickness is the direct correlation of just a practice of sin in your life. Rather, certain sins will have consequences. Uh, If you give yourself over to to, to drunkenness or to any sort of lifestyle of uh, immorality, it will have consequences on the quality of your life. There's no way of avoiding that. But there's also this reality uh, that, that sin is a consequence, or that sickness is a consequence of living in a sinful, broken world. Uh, that, that sickness is not always the result of practicing sin. Rather, sickness in this world is the consequence of living in a sinful, broken world. And so what does this have to do with confession? Well, what we see happen in the scriptures is that when the people of God would give themselves over to a lifestyle of idolatry, their entry point back into relationship with God was never trying to scale their way back to the Lord and right all their wrongs and do good and earn their relationship with God. Rather, their entry point into relationship with God was always confession. The entry point into relationship with God was not striving and earning and fixing Rather, it was bowing down, confessing that you got it wrong, seeking forgiveness, and receiving forgiveness. 
Think about that. That the God of the Bible, this God that we live for, isn't asking you to strive and earn relationship with him. He isn't asking you to right all of your wrongs and make up for every single bad thing you've ever done and earn your status, earn your approval, earn your relationship with him. Rather, he's asking you to come and approach him humbly and confess your sins, repent of building your life on anything or anyone else and receive the Lord's grace. Uh, Think about how liberating this is. Think about how loving and kind this is, is that our entry point into relationship with God is confession. Turning away from building a life for ourselves and confessing that uh, apart from God, we can do nothing. And that He truly is God and turning to Him in repentance. You see, confession reminds our hearts Jesus is Lord. Confession helps us breathe again. Because when we are not confessing our sin to the Lord, when we're not practicing uh, accountability um, and, and, and vulnerability with community, what we're ending up doing is, is that we're creating this dam in our lives where we're restricting the flow of God's presence through our life because we have these barriers that we've erected. These barriers of sin that are stifling us and keeping us from experiencing all that God has for us. But when we confess, we can breathe again. We are opening up our hearts to the flow of God's presence and mercy and grace all over again. And so James instructs us to confess our sins regularly. To confess to one another that we may be healed or that we may be made whole and walk in wholeness. And walking in individualistic privacy. Walking in in such a way where uh, we are hoarding in all of our problems and issues is not a way to be made better. Rather, it it has very detrimental effects on our spiritual lives and physical lives. And the Lord in His great kindness says that there's a way to live where you can experience a greater degree of wholeness and intimacy with me. And it's confession. Regularly pouring out your heart before God. Inviting people into your human experience. And see how the Lord begins to uh, create connection with one another and deeper intimacy with Him. Confession reminds our hearts that Jesus is Lord. Confession connects us to God. And also there's a practice of confession that connects us to one another. Uh, that, That we're called... To to bear one another's burdens, to to be able to represent God's grace and mercy to one another as we open our lives and say, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm hurting. This is where I'm in pain. And and, and the response is not to have all the right answers and have all the right verses, but to sometimes just embody God's presence by just being available. Uh, This week, um, one of my best closest friends put uh, texted me and my other close friend in a group message and he said hey can one of you guys call me right now and he called and he's broken he's feeling pain he's he, he, he he's hurting he's he, he's doubting life choices and life decisions and it was just half an hour of him crying and breaking down i didn't need to say anything my other friend didn't need to say anything 
We just needed to embody God's presence and say, hey, we're here for you. We are present, just as the Lord is present. And, and I love what he said. He said, man, this really helped. This made all the difference. And I've had moments there too where, hey, can, can uh, I call one of my closest friends? Can I, just, can I just vomit? And I vomit. And I'm like, man, I feel way better because that's what happens when you vomit. You usually feel better uh, with food and with our spiritual lives. And so sometimes what God isn't calling you to do is have all the right answers and know all the right things to say, but literally be a presence that uh, represents his grace. And, and, and display to others that, hey, the same way that God's not going to abandon you, I'm not going to abandon you when you reveal all of your junk to me. And I'm here for you. And I will stand with you. Confession connects us to God and to one another. And this is how uh, James concludes this portion of Scripture. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So another moment where it seems like, okay, what does Elijah have to do with this? Uh, James, you're concluding your whole book, and now all of a sudden you introduce an Old Testament character. Couldn't you close with Jesus? Jesus might have been a better example. So why does James mention Elijah? And who is Elijah? Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Uh, we see his story in the book of Kings. And, and specifically uh, in, in 1 Kings 18, we get a really detailed uh, depiction of, uh, of Elijah's ministry. Uh, Elijah had an arch nemesis. He had, he had an enemy. And that enemy was the king of Israel. His name was Ahab. And the reason why that was his enemy was because Elijah's heart was committed to serving and worshiping the Lord. And his role as the prophet was to be God's voice to this community and to rebuke any sort of injustices uh, that were being committed against this nation and call this nation to repent. Ahab was Elijah's arch nemesis because uh, Ahab represented the exact opposite of Elijah's heart for this nation. Ahab was an idol worshiper. In fact, he led uh, this nation into uh, a season of idolatry uh, that, that was completely opposite to uh, sort of the system of worship that God had instituted. Um, Ahab's uh, idol of choice was uh, this, this storm god named Baal. Um, and instead of worshiping the Lord in the temple, uh, in the place of worship, they would worship this false god. And Elijah could not stand Ahab. And Ahab hated Elijah. So much so that Ahab's reign said, let's kill all the prophets, including Elijah. And so there was all sorts of darkness in this day and time. Uh, there was all sorts of, uh, 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 of brokenness and all sorts of idolatry being practiced. So much so that Elijah prayed, hey, if you guys are going to practice um, uh, all sorts of idolatry, and you're going to pray to this God who brings uh, rain, I'm going to pray to God and say, you know what, stop the rain. Uh, so I can really show you whose God is altogether powerful and the true bringer of rain. And so for three years, there, 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 there was no rain. And then in 1 Kings uh, 18, we see this moment where God speaks to Elijah and says, go find Ahab and go pray that it would rain. And what's so interesting about this story is, is, that, is that God, Elijah prays to God and, and, and God shows up. But what happens in between is, is super interesting. You see, uh, James includes this story about Elijah going up to the mountain, praying to God. He sees a cloud and in this moment of faith says, rain is coming. Tells Ahab, hey, rain's coming, go home. And it makes me wonder, why not include all these other stories about Elijah? There's actually way better stories than this one. 
Uh, there's one story where Elijah rose, uh, prayed for this little boy, and he rose from the dead. Uh, there's another story where uh, Elijah is going toe-to-toe with 450 Baal prophets, and they're having this showdown. And he says, hey, let's see who, whose God is, is really God. How about you, you create this sort of sacrifice, and whoever's God can, can light this sacrifice with fire, that's the true God. And so the story goes that there's 450 Baal prophets. They're cutting themselves, and they're practicing all sorts of dark pagan worship, and nothing's happening. And Elijah begins to make fun of them. He's like, hey, is your God busy? Is he home? Is he using the restroom? What's happening here? And uh, Elijah says, I'll show you that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. He says, throw all of the water on this sacrifice. Uh, Drench it with water. Make it really hard to consume with fire. He takes his time. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. The Lord comes and sets this sacrifice on fire. And in this moment, we see God is truly God. And what's so amazing about this story is that it wasn't so much the, the, the quality, um, the, the quantity of Elijah's faith. It wasn't that he was working and striving and saying, God, please come down and do this. Rather, it was the object of his faith. It was that he was praying to a God who is real, who loves his people. And so when we pray to him, God responds. And we have 450 prophets that are worshiping a completely different God. And when they pray to that God, that God is not going to respond because he's not real. And so it makes our communion and connection with God so marvelous and so beautiful is that it's not so much about how much you can strive and how much you can build up. Rather, it's the object of our faith. We're praying to a God who is a father who listens to his children and loves to respond and move on our behalf. But this isn't the story that James shares. Uh, The story that James shares happens after this, where this epic showdown has happened, and God reminds Elijah, go up to the mountain and pray for rain. Let's pray to end this drought. And in this moment, Elijah goes up to the mountain, gets on his knees, and prays to God that he would send rain. Uh, This moment is more than a, a, a cool miracle appearing after three years of drought. Rather, this is a moment of restoration. And the reason why I believe uh, James includes this story of Elijah praying to God that it would rain again is because in many ways it represents sort of the restoration and renewal that God intends to bring on his people. That here we have a people of God that were committing themselves to all sorts of sin. That were committing adultery against the one true God that were bowing down and worshiping to a false God that they believed would give them a higher quality of life. And in one moment, God stops the rain uh, as a sign of judgment towards their sinfulness. And in another moment, three years later, he brings about the rain again, symbolizing that God's heart is to renew them and to restore him and bring them back into a proper relationship with God. And ultimately, that is what our prayer life is about. It's not so much about, man, who can pray for the coolest miracle and who can get God to respond to them in the most miraculous way. Rather, our prayer is about relationship. Renewing the relationship over and over again that we already have with Jesus as we commune with him. 
prayer is about experiencing restoration as there's parts of our hearts that are broken and unrestored. And as we commune with God, his presence begins to move in our lives in such a way that we experience renewal and restoration. Prayer isn't all about just, hey, Lord, can I pray in such a way where I can take down all my enemies and I can see crazy miracle signs and wonders. But is prayer motivated by intimacy in your life? Is prayer motivated by relationship? By this idea that when you commune with God, he renews and restores us or our prayer just goal oriented. Lord, I'm having trouble here with finances or relationships or problems in my life. Can you just come through on this so I can experience relief, have a good quality of life without you, and then come back to you when that quality of life goes down? And, and that's the way we approach God in prayer. And, and, and God, as gracious and as good as he is, wants more than that. He doesn't abandon us when that's our attitude. Rather, he shows us that there's a better way to live, a way of breathing, consistently taking in the oxygen of God's presence as we commune with him in prayer. Elijah was a person, not a superhero, and James reminds us of that. A man with a nature like ours. Uh, Elijah, after this grand, miraculous moment, spiraled into a depression and into a moment of doubt where uh, Ahab would send his wife to come kill this man and Elijah would say, Lord, it is better for me not to live. A nature like ours. Uh, After this glorious showdown, he spirals into sadness. He's restless, he's angry, he's fearful. There's moments of happiness, there's moments of sad. There's a nature like ours. And so his ability to pray and get results was not the result of him being holier or better. Rather, it was the object of his prayer. That when you pray to God, God hears you and he responds to you. He was praying to God. I want to end with uh, another man who had a nature like ours. And in many ways did not have a nature like ours. Jesus, fully human yet fully divine. And we see that Jesus' life was a life filled with prayer, filled with communing with God, uh, that, that, that Jesus chose to model to us consistent relationship and dependence on God through prayer, through breathing and experiencing intimacy with the Father. And we see in a moment that Jesus prays a prayer of faith. When he's in the garden experiencing the agony of sin and the death that awaits him on the cross, and Jesus perfectly prays this prayer of faith. Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. And and Jesus takes on the cross and dies for every single sin that we've ever committed, past, present, and future. Why? So that we can be made righteous. And what does James say about the prayer of a righteous person? It has great power at work with him or her. And so Jesus dies and goes to the cross so that we can be made righteous. And now when you pray and when you commune with God, it has great power because we pray to a God that we're connected with. We pray to a God that has made us his children and we can call him our father because Jesus has died to make us family. Jesus has died to secure God's presence inside of our hearts so that when we pray, we can rest assured that we are communing with God and that we don't have to strive or earn or find God. Rather, he's already with us because Jesus has died to secure his presence in our hearts. 
And so now it's not about moments of striving and earning. Rather, it's about remembering to breathe. Remembering to take in the oxygen that has already been made available to you. Church, if you're a follower of Jesus, God lives in your heart. And you are communing with the God of the universe who is not far off and distant. Rather, is so accessible uh, that, that we have union with him. And that when we commune with him and when we talk to him and when we pour out our hearts to him, he is there to receive us. And in his presence, we find oxygen for life and spiritual nourishment. And it doesn't become about the quantity or quality, but the object of our faith. We can get to God. God hears us and receives us. So before we transition to worship and communion, Let's take a moment to breathe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gift that you've given us in prayer. Lord, thank you that uh, it's not so much about the words we say or how we say it, but who we are saying it to. And so, Lord, we worship you for being a good father who receives us and who hears us and who is near to us. Not because of our great work to get to you, but because you have come down to us. And when we couldn't make a way or remove this barrier of sin in our lives, you removed it at the cross so that we can be made righteous and whole, identified with your life and not our sinfulness. And now we can have this confidence and assurance that you are with us and that you hear us when we commune with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us breathe. That you would help us take in this oxygen that is your presence for nourishment and for life. Maybe in your own words and in your thought or out loud to yourself, would you take a moment to confess to the Lord? Maybe an area of your life that feels restricting, that feels suffocating, it feels like you're drowning. Would you confess that to him? Would you invite him to come flow in you and through you and bring life? Lord, come bring rain in parts of our hearts that feel like there's a drought. Lord, I pray that you would come put a song in our hearts to sing when we feel joyful. Lord, thank you, thank you for being here with us and meeting us right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.